Welcome to the Audit 15 Fund podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, we're going to be talking about applied information economics. And to talk about that topic, I have the honor to have as my guest, Doug Hubbard. Doug is the president of the Hubbard Decision Research. Welcome, Doug, to the podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Absolutely. So I have a four-year-old daughter, and today when I go back home, she may ask me, Daddy, what'd you do today? Uh, I talked to Doug Hubbard about applied information economics. And she may ask me, that's not going to happen, but let's just pretend. She may ask me, what is applied information economics? How would you explain that to a four-year-old, Doug? Well. If I, I suspect your daughter might be a fairly advanced four-year-old, but um, here's the simple explanation. Uh, it's about making better decisions. Ultimately, what it's about. Now, there's a lot of different areas, a lot of different fields that have something to do with improved decisions. This is a particular approach. This is more about what should I look at to make a better decision? That's the thing. You know, you're making a decision about, uh, you know, uh, which movie do you want to see or which toys you want to get for Christmas or stuff like this, uh, you might have some uncertainty. Maybe you have a dilemma, uh, right? Uh, so you might ask her, well, uh, do you have like three toys you want to consider? Uh, how are you deciding that you like one or the other? That basically make it a kind of a forecast. You're predicting that you'll end up liking this toy more than that toy. We might recall getting something that we thought we'd like and it turned out we didn't. Um, that's a kind of error that happens in business too. People invest a bunch of money in a new IT project or some new capital investment or buying a new building. And it turned out it didn't really work the way they wanted to. Or they turned out an investment or maybe they didn't give somebody a big loan and it would have been a great um, you know, uh, I'm sure uh, Blockbuster uh, regrets turning down Netflix. On the other hand, I know that plenty of people have spent a lot of money on big IT projects and regretted doing it. So there's regret for not doing it. There's regret for doing it. And you're asking the question, given this uncertainty, how can I reduce it? What's the best way for me to make a better bet? And there, the answer, you can answer that question. There are things that are more important to look at than other things for making a better bet. Yeah, absolutely. So and you, you touch on, the, on an excellent point there that people make mistakes when they're making decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Like Blockbuster, perfect example. <laughs> mm -hmm. So sure. thinking about that decision-making process, mm -hmm. what, what is a common mistake that people make during that process, in your opinion? Well, I think the first common mistake is that they might assume that going through some method that seems structured and formal or even just asking a really experienced person, they assume that works, but often it doesn't. The problem is, is in the really big decisions that we make, the decisions that have multi-year consequences and cost a lot of money, we don't get immediate feedback on those. If you decide that you wanna invest in a, you wanna build a brand new hotel because you think it's gonna be a great investment, well, you don't find out the first year that it was going to be a great investment, even the second year, even if the rooms were maxed out. You're not finding out right away that in given its whole lifetime that it was a good investment. 
uh, you at least have to wait until you broke even. And that might be a few years into it, right? Um, if you're developing new oil theory, you're not going to find out right away after you've spent all the money that it was a good investment. In some cases, the projects themselves, before you start to get any benefits at all, might be more than a year. Big IT projects, big uh, civil engineering projects, uh, R&D and you know, aerospace, artificial intelligence. People spend lots of money on those things. Pharmaceutical, uh, drug development. Those things take time. And there's a lot of times where people engage in some analytical method. Uh, maybe they come up with a scoring method or they collaborate with a bunch of experts in the field. They will inevitably feel better about their estimates and decisions, but they'll feel better even if their actual measured performance is worse than it was before. So we can't rely on our impression that a methodology is working. That's the problem. We lack immediate feedback. We learn best when we get immediate, consistent feedback. If you get immediate, consistent feedback and keep practicing at something, you're going to get pretty good at it, whether it's a golf swing or shooting baskets or whatever it is. Immediate, consistent feedback is what gets, helps us get better. But that's not the world that most decision makers in business and government live in. We don't get immediate feedback. So how do we figure out which things should actually help us make better decisions? Well, fortunately, there's been a lot of research on methods that work and don't work. The, you asked me what the biggest mistakes, the biggest mistakes are people coming up with their own scoring method and thinking that's going to make better, make better decisions. Uh, I, well, I got these eight factors I want to consider when I'm prioritizing projects and I'm going to rank them all and score them on a scale of one to 10 or something and add them up and get a weighted score. And a score of 28.2 is going to be higher than a score of 15.8, something like that. And like I said, they're going to feel better. Right. They're going to be more confident. Whether or not they're actually getting a higher return on their portfolio of projects is a whole different thing. But, uh, and in fact, we know now there's plenty of research saying that methods like that might actually add error of their own. It, yeah. You might make decisions worse than your unaided intuition would have led you to do. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I think you, you touched on that on your website that sometimes some, some methods are kind of like placebo. They just, Kind of you're, you, yes. you think you're feeling better about it, but it's not actually helping you, right? Yeah, we call it the analysis placebo. And that's because of several uh, research projects that were done in different fields, completely different kinds of researchers were studying the effects of using different methods and types of collaboration on confidence and whether or not there was any relationship between the confidence in the method and actual performance. And these are journals where they don't even cite each other. So they're actually unaware of each other's research. I, I cite four papers in particular, completely different sources. And they're, uh, I believe all of them are unaware of each other. Maybe one or two of them cited one of the other ones, but most of them were just unaware of the other ones. I think that that's sufficient reason to believe that this is probably a prevalent phenomenon that's common to any field. Everybody feels better about their estimates and decisions if it, feels like you're using a method that should improve your decisions, right? Like people might say, well, I think, I think we've got a lot of buy-in on new method. It really helped build consensus. Yeah, I'm sure it did build consensus, but are your decisions better? I, I think uh, lots of methods like that will help build consensus, right. uh, but that's a different question than if the 
or getting buy-in or something. They might use terms right. like it, at least now it's structured and formal. Uh, astrology is structured formal. <laughs> Why not use that? Right. 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 No, we we want to track. And by the way, I I, I don't mean that entirely facetiously. That there really are some methods that are no better than that. Really, they're they're no better than chance. Really. Uh, right. Just the way people use them. Yeah. Um, so we have to be constantly skeptical of the methods, especially when we don't get feedback like that. The only way we can determine if methods are improving our decisions, don't get feedback, is to look at prior measurements, prior research on how well different components of methods work. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we want. Yeah, hey, good point. You know, reaching consensus or getting buy-in is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to make better decisions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly getting buy-in, you know, might make a decision more likely to succeed, mm -hmm. but that's not the objective itself. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about uh, applied uh, information economics and, you know, your experience in this field, what type of decisions work best with that methodology and what type of decisions maybe don't work as well with that methodology? Well, there's a lot of decisions where I don't use it. I mean, I don't use applied information economics to decide which restaurant we're going to go to to eat tonight. Uh, or, you know, if my wife and I want to watch a particular movie on Netflix or something on Sunday evening or something, you know, we don't really, we don't really go through applied information economics. But the, I tell you what, anything about the size of a new car or bigger, we start getting a lot more quantitative, like a house. I built a whole simulation for a house and a starter business. So the, where it applies best are highly consequential and uncertain decisions. If you have uh, a big cost of being wrong and a significant chance of being wrong, those are exactly the kinds of things where you shouldn't use applied information economics. Yes. Now, applied information economics is really just a variation on other existing fields that, you know, Decision analysis, decision theory, also decision psychology. So we pull together a bunch of components that are more or less loosely associated with those fields, but we put them together in a specific procedure and call that applied information economics. So we're not the first people to compute the value of information. That's right. been around for many decades. Uh, we're not the first people to think about decisions under uncertainty. That's been around for a long time. Game theory, decision theory, um, making statistical inferences. In uh, even uh, making risk return trade-offs, how much more return am I willing to accept for a given risk and so forth? Uh, we didn't have to invent any of that. But if we go through and select components of methods, components that show the best improvement in decision-making and improvement in estimations and so forth, we end up putting together a list from that, those fields. Uh, those, uh, we know that some methods measurably outperform Others, even when both methods are subjective, some subjective methods measurably outperform other subjective methods. So we don't have to eliminate subjectivity. We want to incorporate that, but we want to use methods that actually work better. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point because uh, some people may think it's all about being quantitative. So it sounds like there's a little bit of qualitative as well, as long as it works, correct? Well, I, I differentiate qualitative and subjective. I can subjectively assess how tall a building is, but it's, I, the height is quantitative. I, I stated my uncertainty about its height. 
right? Um, qualitative would say, I, I think I, I think that's a medium or a high or something like that. That would be qualitative. There's no units in that. But asking someone to subjectively estimate a quantitatively well-defined unit of measure, that's different. Uh, we, can, we can actually uh, measure how close people are to observed outcomes. If I ask a bunch of experts to estimate how long various tasks on projects take, I can measure how long the actual task takes. They can measure it in a well-defined unit like days or weeks. And then I can compare that to the original estimate. And I'll know that some people were better at estimating than others. That's, we're objectively measuring the performance of subjective estimates. Whereas if they said, I think this is medium complexity, or it's a complexity of four on a scale of one to five, um, that's a little less informative. That's more like what I typically call qualitative. It's still subjective, but it's also lacking a specified unit. Now, if somebody said um, A is more complex than B, that's not entirely uninformative. That's, that would be an ordinal uh, statement. That might tell me something. Um, so that by itself, that doesn't have to have a specific defined unit measure, uh, and it can still be informative that way. Uh, so, but in a way, that's a quantity too. So measurements can include things like ordinal scales. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, where you rate something on one to five. So four isn't necessarily twice as good as a two on a scale of one to five. It's not mathematically that way. Uh, so it can be informative, but the error is to treat them like they're an interval or ratio quantity. Like you can multiply two scores of scale of one to five together. You're not supposed to do that. They don't mean the same thing anymore. Uh, so those mathematical operations don't apply in situations. Um, Furthermore, when you invent scales like this for, let's say, prioritizing projects or evaluating risk or something like this, uh, there's actually a lot of interesting psychology behind how people choose the values on those scales that the designers of those scales seem to never take into account. There's whole fields of research on these weird behaviors that people have when they choose numbers on a scale. One of them, I talk about things like partition dependence, the arbitrary choice of whether or not you made it a five-point scale versus a seven or a 10-point scale has unintended consequences for how people distribute their choices. And the designers aren't aware of that at first. Uh, so partition dependence is one. The other one has been discovered by researchers is something they call the illusion of communication. We both agree that something is a medium likelihood or medium risk or something like this. But when you debrief us, we find out we meant completely different things. <laughs> so uh, there, there, there appears to be a lot of that. So the messier and more ambiguous these scales get, the more likely illusions of communication would be. Well, in fact, um, the illusion of communication seems to be one of the drivers behind the claim that, hey, this helped us build consensus. Of course, it helped you build consensus. It use such ambiguous language that no one really understood exactly what everyone else meant. So it's easier to agree because you just assumed everybody else meant the same thing you meant because we all left the meeting saying it was a moderate, uh, a moderate impact and uh, somewhat unlikely likelihood. We all left and agreed that it ends up making it a medium risk. Uh, well, we meant completely different things, but it built consensus. 
right? Yeah, medium risk to one person may be completely different to someone else. So, and it turns out, by the way, that it, it may depend a lot less on how you define those things that people think. Sometimes people say, well, I can, if I define each of these intervals very clearly, suppose I said low likelihood, it's less than 10% chance per year of occurring or less than 5%. And a high impact or critical impact would be greater than a $40 million loss or something like this. I define those very carefully. I said, no, that, that partition dependence thing isn't going to happen to me because I've carefully defined that stuff. Turns out it doesn't matter. Turns out that when people actually behave, when they actually start choosing those, uh, those intervals, uh, the bigger influence on their choices is actually just the number of points on the scale. It depends less on how you define them than you would hope. You'd hope that the definition was that it, the entire basis of their choosing it. They may even believe they're choosing because they read the definitions. But in fact, you can observe this. If I meet a, a five-point scale where I said uh, low impact was less than a million dollars loss, and then I had two, three, four, and five all defined. And I observe a bunch of people answering that. Let's suppose that 20% of people chose a, a one in that case. And then I go to a 10-point scale and I have more intervals defined. They go further out. Let's say number one is still defined as less than a million-dollar impact. If about 20% of the time people chose it the first time, it should be about the same the second time. Right. It's not what happens. You've defined all, everything very clearly. Everyone believes they're reading the definitions when they provide their judgments. So why did fewer people choose a one when it happened to be on a 10-point scale or on a five-point scale? Partition dependence. Uh, we've got all this weird psychology when we respond to these things. So we avoid that stuff entirely by just saying, I'm going to teach you how to subjectively assess a probability, and I want you to give me your estimate about this objective thing. You know. What's our productivity improvement going to be in terms of a percentage? How many hours per week do people spend in this activity? How much is this going to cost? How many weeks duration is it going to be? What percent market share you get? That kind of stuff. Those are things I could measure and yes. then compare to the original estimate. Yes, very good. I think that's a good takeaway for auditors out there to when you're thinking about the subjective piece, try to make it measurable, right? So that mm -hmm. you can go, you know, uh, a year later or two years later and actually measured to see if that was accomplished or not. So um, one of the things that uh, it's covered on your website regarding uh, applied information to economics is that not all variables are worth measuring. Mm -hmm. uh, and the ones that people usually think that are worth measuring are not. And some that they think that are not worth measuring, maybe they should be measuring. Can you kind of mm -hmm. explain uh uh, you know, that to the listeners here and maybe some, some examples that they can take away. Oh, sure. We call that the measurement version. So what we've been doing all these years. So really, I kind of started doing some of this when I first started doing management consulting uh, 33 years ago, 34 years ago now uh, at Coopers and Library. It's PricewaterhouseCoopers now, uh, but I was in their management consulting services and the director of consulting there the partner in charge of our team uh, came from Rand Corporation and he was an Air Force Academy grad and he was a quant. Um, and uh, I kind of had a quantitative oriented MBA anyway, but we really got into it, you know, working with this guy. So everything was a quantitative problem to him. And I kind of agreed with him on everything that, it, yeah, everything we were looking at was ultimately a quantitative problem. So 
uh, that was my early introduction to things like decision analysis, where you actually do compute things like the value of information. Later on, it became apparent, especially uh, even before I started my own business 22, 23 odd years ago, um, it became apparent that for a typical business case where you've got costs and benefits over multiple years, that there would be several continuous, sometimes interrelated variables that I would have to compute information values for. So I came up with a set of methods for computing information values for that kind of situation because it seemed like the literature about decision analysis was dealing with really simple situations. Like you've got discrete binary outcomes in a decision. Either you're going to succeed or you're going to lose. If you lose, you lose a million dollars. There's a 20% chance of occurring. What's the value of additional information, et cetera. Um, but if you have a typical business case where I've got a probability distribution for cost and probability distribution for productivity improvements, productivity, uh, probability distribution for adoption rates, of new technology or something like this, or growth of the organization, uh, which of those things should I spend more time measuring? Well, we developed these algorithms, which still kind of boil down to the chance of being wrong times the cost of being wrong, except now it's sort of, uh, it's, you can be wrong by a little bit or wrong by a lot. It's not just either or you're wrong, right? So you, you, there's thresholds, like I'm showing one of the charts behind me here. So the, uh, I'm, I'm seeing thresholds for that stuff and things are even related. So what's the value of measuring this variable alone if I don't measure anything else? Or what's the value of measuring these two together? It's usually not just the sum of the two in, independent uh, information values. Well, we started doing this uh, just over, even before I started my own business, and I've been doing it ever since. And so now we've got a couple of hundred or more uh, big de decision analysis problems where we've computed information values on each variable. And some of these were just a couple of dozen variables, and some of them were over 300 variables. And it's, there's thousands of individual variables we've computed information values on. And I started observing early on when I was doing portfolios of IT projects. That was my initial foray into all of this. I was doing risk return analysis on portfolios of IT projects. I observed that the things that had the highest information value were almost never what the client would have measured otherwise. Uh, they would have measured things that according to our calculations were statistically less likely to improve decisions. Like they would focus on near-term development costs, but they would ignore things like long-term maintenance and training and long-term benefits or adoption rates and things like this, or even the chance of cancellation of a project. That's not insignificant. You have to consider that. Uh, and these were high information value variables. At first, you know, I actually called this the IT measurement inversion in my first articles and presentations about this. But as we branched out into a lot of different areas, oil and gas, entertainment, aerospace, pharmaceuticals, all of that kind of stuff, it happened everywhere. I was seeing the measurement version everywhere we looked. Every time we built some big decision model about some new drug development or some aerospace R&D or uh, a client wanted to build a new manufacturing facility or buy a new office space or something like this, uh, or develop a new oil and gas field or something like this. In each of those cases, we'd build these models, a big cash flow going out multiple years, lots of variables, and the high information values were rarely the ones they would have measured otherwise. We also found out that they didn't need to measure very many things. So there might be a hundred variables in a model and they only need to measure three or four of them out of a hundred variables. So it turns out that just a few things really matter and they're not what the client would have guessed. 
uh, you asked me for some examples. One of the, one of the examples I talked a lot about, because I was able to write about it in the book, the client gave me permission, um, was for the Marine Corps, the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh -huh. I developed the algorithms they use for forecasting fuel for the battlefield. Now, forecasting a logistic supply item like that uh, is something that where you can be wrong by a little bit or wrong by a lot, right? You don't want to overestimate and you don't want to underestimate. There's cost for both of them, but generally speaking, the cost of underestimating, say, some logistic supply item for the battlefield is a much steeper loss function than the cost of overestimating. Cost of overestimating is you just order too much, you have a bunch of supplies. Okay. Right. Uh, you underestimate it, you run out of fuel out there. Yeah. You know? so, so that's a, th those are different, you know, asymmetrical loss functions, kind of like the chart I'm showing over my shoulder, girl, asymmetrical loss functions. And I'm uncertain about how much I'm going to use. So where should I measure to reduce my uncertainty? And given my uncertainty, how much should I plan for? Right. Because it might not just be the middle of my range, depending on my loss functions, how risk averse I am and so forth. So uh, what they originally thought they should be measuring, and this is all in the book, was um, a chance of enemy contact and uh, maintenance forecast, maintenance forecast on vehicles, which vehicles would be running or not. And the idea being that if, if they engage with the enemy, there's more activity on the battlefield and you know they're burning more fuel. It turned out that Neither of those made the top five or 10 of the highest information value variables. I mean, really, the, the enemy doesn't know what it's going to do in 60 days. We had to forecast 60 days out, and it turned out that none, neither of those had a high information value. The highest information value variable was the difference in mileage between paved and gravel roads. And in, in retrospect, that made perfect sense. Yes, tanks get terrible mileage, by the way. Uh, an M1 Abrams gets 0.3 miles to the gallon. Oh, wow. uh, so <laughs> you can use it three gallons, a little over three gallons to drive a mile. Um, it's a turbine powered tank. So yeah, it's going to use up a lot of fuel. Uh, but that isn't where all the fuel goes. Most of the fuel actually goes in convoys. We're talking about ground forces, not aviation. But when you're talking about ground forces, most of the fuel goes in convoys. So you're running convoy supply lines up and down these main supply routes and alternate supply routes. And if you knew in advance which supply routes were paved versus unpaved, that actually made a bigger difference in your fuel use. So these are things that make perfect sense in retrospect. Like once you find them, you go, oh, yeah, of right. course. That, <laughs> that's, that's where most of the fuel is going. And if there's this one variable that changes it, then we should look at that. In fact, um, a couple of other things bump up at the top. Um, if you go up and down hills a lot, use up more fuel. So it's not just paved or gravel, it's going up and downhill. So, it, and it's not just going uphill or downhill because you got to go the other way back anyway, uh, sooner or later. So uh, it's just how, it's just the number of elevation lines on the map you cross. That's because whether it's uphill or downhill, it's one way or the other. Uh, and you, often you have to bring as much stuff back as you sent forward anyway. So it's not that big a difference. Um, and the other one was the number of stops or checkpoints on a route. because. Uh, these uh, Army and Marine Corps trucks don't have regenerative braking. They're not hybrid vehicles. So every time you stop the convoy, it has to accelerate again. Mm -hmm. Every single checkpoint on a supply route was an extra 1,200 gallons of fuel a day. Oh, wow. Given all the convoys and all the vehicles in each convoy that go through that route every day, uh, every single checkpoint changed it by that much. 
So if you know your, if your theory of operations is going to change from an area that's less developed or more developed, and there's, it's hillier or flatter, or you're going to need more checkpoints or not, uh, all of that affects your fuel use. Uh, it's just, it's more about convoys. It was a lot less to do with whether or not you're going to engage that is where, how the, how are the convoys spending their fuel? So that was a big one. Um, another example was, uh, a Canadian potash mining company. So they were doing the, uh, risk return analysis on investments to mitigate the risk of a mine flooding. Uh-huh. So you, you dig out mines under freshwater sources. It's a kilometer up. The fresh water is a kilometer higher than mine. So, but eventually it's possible that fresh water could find a, a, a circuit through, you know, a fracture circuit through the ground and get into the uh, potash mine. And potash is a salt, so it dissolves pretty quickly in fresh water. And if that starts coming through, it starts eroding away very quickly. And then something that's a trickle turns into a gush, et cetera. Well, they had this trickle that had been going on for quite a few years, and they wanted to work out what's the chance that it's actually going to flood the mine and we'd have to shut down operations. It probably wouldn't flood so quickly that you know somebody would be trapped or anything like that. It flood too fast to control, but it still have time to leave. The problem is, you know, you'd have to stop operations uh, or switch to something they call solution mining, where you're just pumping fresh water up and getting salt water back and then processing that out. But that's a much more expensive uh, operation, lower productivity. Uh, so the question is, is how much should they invest and how should they invest to limit the risk of the mine flooding? Well, one of the things they were going to measure was, was involved, uh, involved uh, taking core samples from the rock strata. So you have to ship a drilling platform underground a kilometer. There's special rigs for this. They move this through the tunnel system. They construct it and it drills sideways and up. And then they take a core sample and they look at the uh, fracture systems, the porosity, the salt content, et cetera. And they do all these calculations to work out how fast a freshwater front could move through that rock strata. Uh, every single one of those would be a million dollars and we could do a whole bunch. And we said, now the main thing you need to measure is the uh, capacity of the main shaft pump. Um, how much water could it move in the event that you were getting flooded more quickly? Uh-huh. There's a a pump they call a high head pump. It pumps water a kilometer. If you can imagine that, a big diesel engine running underground with one piston. It's kind of remarkable engineering, really. Uh, but it pumps water a kilometer up. Uh, anyway, uh, we did that. That's another example of they were going to originally measure something else that would have actually been more expensive for them to measure and would have been less informative. Those are yes. a couple of examples. Yes, very interesting uh, what you mentioned there at the beginning uh, when you're working with uh, portfolios, IT systems, just thinking about other things, the long-term maintenance and chance of cancellation. That's something that does not come to people's mind when they're implementing a new system. And very good uh, example there from the uh, Marine Corps and as well as from the mining company. It reminded me I had a recent interview with uh someone, a uh, risk officer from Brazil, Marco Nuccini, and he mentioned a case of a mining company in Brazil and they had they had an incident there and it actually ended up going to court and the executives tried to defend themselves by saying that the risk was not red. <laughs> oh, so instead of- well, That's so, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so 
anyways, I really appreciate your time on the podcast. Uh, for those who are uh, interested in learning more about applied information economics, what is the best way that, for them to contact you? Oh, well, uh, first off, uh, there's our website at hubbardresearch.com. I've written multiple books about these topics, by the way. So howtomeasureanything.com is the website for my books. Um, hubbardresearch.com is our consulting website. Uh, you can find us through either way. Uh, if you sent a, uh, an email to info at hubbardresearch.com, go to my team. If you had any questions about how to apply something like this at all, we've definitely worked with auditors. We've worked with engineers, statisticians, biostatisticians, IT execs, you know, cybersecurity, risk, chief risk officers, all of that sort of stuff. So those are all people we've worked with in the past. Um, and we work in a lot of different industries. So we don't have to specialize in your industry. A lot of your clients might have their own special industry. Uh, we rely on our clients to be the experts in their industry. We're the outsiders coming in uh, with our uh, quantitative modeling methods. And that's how, that's how we connect. I mean, I can tell you a lot about potash mining in Canada now, but... <laughs> uh, or radar R&D and aerospace or something like this. Uh, but those are all things we picked up uh, just working with clients. So um, uh, it, yeah, the, those it doesn't really matter what it's in. If it's a big decision under uncertainty or really frequent, smaller decision under uncertainty, those are where AIE matters. It uh, makes a big difference. And yes. we hope this is really important. Because of the feedback problem, because of the analysis placebo problem, uh, we only use methods where we can point to other research, large clinical trial research that shows a measurable improvement every step we take. You should be very skeptical of any method. I'm skeptical of every method I use. I only use it because I'm less skeptical of some methods than I am about others. So how do you know it works? That's the one question you should keep asking all the time when you're making these big decisions. Your most important decision, by the way, is how to make decisions. Uh, that's the meta decision. You got to figure that out first. Uh, so if, if you answer the meta decision correctly and look at what actually works and doesn't work, you probably end up doing things differently than you're currently doing them. You won't have quite as much confidence in just the smartest guy in the room type approach yeah. uh, or building a qualitative model approach to things. Uh, so uh, yeah, we try to put all that together. So HarvardResearch.com. Um, and we also, right on that site, we have something called the AIE Academy. Uh, so uh, there's a whole series of, of courses that people can sign up for. There's also the AIE Analyst Series, which is a big batch of courses where you get certification in applied information economics. So we do all of that. Awesome. Thank you so much. And great takeaway for auditors. How do you know you're making the best decision? That's a question that you cannot stop asking yourself. So thank you so much. You bet. Thanks a lot.